From Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I'm today's host, Josh Mawadera, a Central Sauce music journalist and the head of music at BrownGoldMagazine.com. And I'm kicking it with two of my favorite people, Mickey and Ryan. What up? Is that your intro of yourself, Mickey? <laughs> oh, I'm going straight into introing myself. I thought Ryan was going to say what up, too. You know, like we're having a combo. But yeah, my name is Mickey Hellerbeck. What up? <laughs> and uh, yeah, I'm a writer at Central Sauce. I just uh, was the artist relations person for uh, something I'm sure we'll all mention today on the podcast. Sauce Fest, our first virtual festival that we just did. Um, uh, yeah, I don't have much to, to really promo besides, um, you know... I, I just wanted to say I'm really proud of what we put together with Sauce Fest, and I hope um, anyone who's listening to this episode who saw Sauce Fest was as proud of it as we are. 100%. Yeah, and I'm Ryan Gore, uh, writer at Central Source. I did some festival stuff too. Um, <laughs> and I'm just proud of the festival. We did a festival, guys. We did a festival, and that's cool. Ooh, I know. Uh, <laughs> I feel like that's actually, this is the perfect week post-festival for the topics we're going to talk about today. Um, because I think they all impact mm. artists of all types, indie or otherwise. But y'all, we did a festival that was super dope with seven artists, and it was on Twitch, and it was beautiful, and we're really proud of that. So if you haven't watched yeah. it, and I remember when the fir- the idea first came up, and I was kind of like, yeah, that'd be cool. That's a cool <laughs> concept in theory. <laughs> and then I remember Joshima coming on, and then we had the first call with Joshima about the festival. And we were like, oh, it'd be cool if we could do this. And Joshua was like, yeah, you just do this, this, and this, and this. And we were like, oh, it's, it's a possible thing. Like, we can, we can do it. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, I want to thank Joshua for coming on and making the actual concept and dream a real thing. Uh, no, man, I think it's a super collective team effort. I think we all kicked ass and... It was a beautiful festival, and I think my favorite part was, like, the comments on the Twitch chat were so awesome because it was like attending a concert 10 years ago with where, like, everyone in the room is a music lover and you're all freaking out at the same time. Um, so that was really awesome. It was, it was a good way to spend whatever pandemic year we're in Saturday. Awesome. Well, before we kick it off, um, I think today's topics are really, really, really interesting. I'm super excited to talk about them. It's going to be a lot of stuff about NFTs, genre-fying artists, and kind of how fandom can lead to some dangerous things on the internet. But before we jump into that, Mickey, what are you listening to? Yeah, um, I guess what I want to highlight that I've been listening to, I've been working on kind of a side project, so listening to a lot of music from a lot of different time periods. But kind of more recent thing uh, that I've been kind of running back is, uh, it's kind of a shorter project, but it's an album from... uh, UK rapper named DC and the project is called in the loop. Um, and so it kind of parallels like a little bit of a a train ride, uh, through London, but also kind of in, uh, paralleling the loop of his own kind of consciousness and paranoia that he is continually dealing with on a little bit of a PTSD level. Um, but also kind of like brotherhood and pride and different things. Uh, but it's my favorite rap project of the year thus far. 
Um, I profiled him last year for Notion magazine, and only two of the tracks that were are on the project were out. Um, and it's really amazing to kind of you know talk to an artist at the begin at you know from one stage, and you hear kind of the beginnings of a project, and then hear it when it all comes out, and it like delivers on top of the the songs that you were already kind of talking to them about. Um, so that's that's a kind of um, I think that project should be getting a lot more love. So definitely check out DC in the Loop. Ooh, amazing. Ryan, what are you listening to? Well, I just got done interviewing a collective called Saros, like literally less than an hour ago. So this whole week I've just been bathing in their music. And uh, they have so many different members with so many different projects out. It's literally just been consuming my life in the best way possible because they're great. And yeah, you'll read about that soon. Or here, read, listen to it soon. But um, apart from that, it's just been Arlo Parks that Mickey put me onto because it's crazy and it's just not fair how good the album is and it's not fair how emotional it makes me constantly and yeah. <laughs> how about you, Joshua? Gosh, I'm listening to a lot of different things, but uh, I actually was listening to Mickey's music because he came over and showed it to me a few weeks ago and I've now recently been spending some time with it. So if y'all do a deep enough stalk, uh, I reckon you could go find some Mickey Heller back tunes on the interwebs. Um, but I'm not going to put him on blast because he's staring at me. But <laughs> who else have I been listening to? I've been listening to a lot of um, Yendry, which I think I've said before on the podcast, but I am so in love with that woman and her music. I think she's actually a very good example of the topic we're going to kick things off with, which is about genrefying artists, because I don't think it's easy to put her music in one or three or ten categories because of the sonic influences and the linguistic influences, which are usually the two ways music is stereotypically genrefied. So maybe this is a good time to kick it off with our first piece. It's called Genre is Disappearing, What Comes Next by Amanda Petrusic. I hope I'm saying that correctly for The New Yorker. Yeah, so this is the piece uh, that I brought this week. Um, it is, pre- I'm, I can pretty safely say my favorite read I've had of an article uh, of 2021 thus far. Um, I was not as kind of hyper aware of the style of the New Yorker pieces. And funny enough, like, I don't know that I've, I mean, maybe I've read a New Yorker piece pre this one, but it's not a publication that I've honestly really paid a lot of attention to, especially in the kind of more, you know, newer awareness of, of really reading as many articles as I do now for this podcast and for, you know, being a journalist, um, but I, I had heard pretty soon before I read this something, I forget who said it exactly, but about the specificity of the style of The New Yorker. Um, and uh, what I found it to be in, uh, with this piece and pieces that I've read after, which is really cool, is The New Yorker pieces feel to me more than any other publication, really, like a condensed version of a book. Um, and I think this piece really feels like that to me. And it feels almost as much as you know the new yorker is a classic publication it almost feels like set for you know the attention span of the modern human who's reading something on on a certain level um just because you know the you know 
with the way that the world moves and the, the amount of stimulus that we're all accustomed to, the idea of sitting down and reading a book is becoming way less of a thing that the average person is doing, unfortunately, fortunately, however you think about it. But this really digested the breadth of an idea and a topic in a very book-like manner, but in an article form. Um, and the way it did it was really expertly done to me specifically. Um, the thing that I love that it does the most is it dives headfirst into the gray area of genre as a concept and a qualifier. And he bases that on generational ingrained ideas about the topic. So it's equal parts personal as it is analytical and talks about the gap or advancement in thinking about things by groups of people younger than me and what it what it means for those things I used to hold value to. So I've been thinking a lot about this kind of idea and Ryan is laughing in our zoom call right now because he makes fun of me for not understanding generation Z humor. Um, cause I'm a millennial, but, uh, this kind of idea of, of what you're holding on to based on whatever ideas you came up with and then letting go of those ideas and then understanding the history of those ideas and qualifiers. Um, so in her own way, uh, Amanda Petrusic really kind of dives into that idea for herself with this piece. Um, so yeah, so the piece starts out um, with her talking about examples like Justin Bieber and Tyler, the creator about their different qualms about uh, the Grammy genre qualifiers and then drops this paragraph thesis. And if you have listened to me on the podcast before, you will know that I do at least one quote reading per article that I do. Um, and if you remember from my favorite piece of last year, um, there was just one paragraph that really stuck out to me. And this kind of thesis paragraph was about three or four paragraphs down has been my favorite paragraph. And it's because of how she ties all of these ideas together. So Petrusic writes, it's difficult to imagine a Grammy ceremony that doesn't rely on genre as its organizing principle. I suppose that would entail the bestowing of just one award, best music. Yet genre feels increasingly irrelevant to the way we think about, create and consume art. Few contemporary stars pride themselves on a pure traditional approach to form and most pull purposefully from asserted histories and practices. Is it even possible in 2021 to locate, let alone enforce, an impermeable membrane between R&B and hip-hop, hip-hop and pop? Genre was once a practical tool for organizing record shops and programming radio stations, but it seems unlikely to remain one in an era which all music feels like a hybrid and listeners are no longer encouraged or incentivized to choose a single area of interest. Um, so yeah, so this, like I kind of said before, is really um, intertwining this idea um, of the kind of classic ideas about genre um, and then slowly in the end kind of tying in her own uh, personal experience with genre in her lifetime uh, and where that goes. And it's a really good lead in to the historical ideas about genre. But that beginning of um, the beginning sentence where she talks about if the Grammys were not to have genre, it would just be best music. She really sets herself up because it's kind of she's she's talking about it in a way of like, well, if you just got rid of genre like people want us to do, then it would just be best music. Right. But then in that way, sets herself up to then explain the history and how the Grammys kind of tie into that. So then a little bit later, she says the statement, genre is not static, a movable idea is not a static, a movable idea, but a reflection of an audience's assumptions and wants at a certain point in time. And then goes into this very in-depth um, explanation of the history of genre in American music. Um, and most importantly, makes the point that genre specifically in American music, like so many things, is driven by race. 
um, and uses a really uh, interesting example of the blues. So I don't know if anyone's seen Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which has been nominated, funny enough, for a lot of awards in this season, uh, since we were talking about that too. Um, but it's uh, uh, it was originally a play written by August Wilson, but now is, was adapted into a Netflix film, um, but really dives into the history of bu- blues music in America, um, which is basically some version of uh, the history is black artists would write blues music. It would get stolen by white record executives given to white to white artists that then would record it and sell it. Um, so for a long time, as she explains in the piece, and I didn't exactly know this side of it, um, that was all blues music was, is like in the underground, in the clubs created by black artists taken from those black or sold or stolen from white record execs, then recorded by white artists and distributed countrywide because they had a kind of a, the gatekeepers or the record execs had a hold over that music. Um, then Mamie Smith kind of broke the barrier as becoming the first, uh, blues artist to record a blues track and then have it distributed. And what they found out is that was very profitable. So in uh, very, um, and yeah, Petrusik does a really good job of explaining this kind of, you know, to maintain white supremacist ideals, um, blues music in its pure form was then totally separated genre wise from white music. So they would still take the kind of written music of black blues performers, but then separate the genre of like the reality of blues music to what white music was inherently and did that to entirely separate blues as a black genre of music which then translated into hip-hop etc 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 um and so then she uses that kind of that history and then ties it in to Lil Nas X and white country consumers so basically Lil Nas X drops Old Town Road um and then tries to insert himself within what has been created by the white establishment into a white genre and to put it very simply gets rejected by that white establishment and not let in and that's a product of that history um and then uh, very very cleverly before she moves into kind of the future of 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 genre she ties that back into the grammys and is like i know it would be just best music if we took out genre but the idea of genre is so problematic racially that inherently the Grammys is an organization that is founded upon those racist ideals about genre in the first place. So dismantling that idea is also on some level dismantling this very problematic thing. Um, And then she kind of on a, a bit of a more positive note goes into the kind of modern contextualizing of genre, which has been made possible by the streaming services um, which on some level has put the, the, I don't know about power is the right word, but the, the agency back into the consumer. Um, and on that level, what has been kind of found because of that is that the consumer is way more interested in a genreless style of like music consumption, which has created types of Spotify playlists like Pollen and Warm, which are much less about like genre qualifications and much more about um, kind of setting a vibe or a tone of music which goes across all genres and intermingles them. So inherently, because it has become more consumer-based, you've gotten rid of the people who are like whatever descendants of those original record executives who were the gatekeepers and with uh, maintaining the ideas of white supremacy in genre and in music. Um, and that that's kind of a thing to behold. And then she also kind of ties in the end her own, again, ideas about the things that she holds 
dear to the idea of genre and how it provided some level of an identity for her growing up being like, you know, she liked a certain kind of music and found her kind of people through that music and how that idea on some level, she hints at it, is ingrained still in those kind of ideas of uh, the American history of genre. Um, and yeah, I know that was like maybe the single longest <laughs> explanation of any piece I've ever done on this podcast. And I swear I'm done and we'll let Joshima and Ryan talk <laughs> now and hopefully we'll have a fruitful discussion. But yeah, um, I wanted to make sure in my intro for this one, I had a really in-depth uh, kind of exploration of what I really took away from this piece. And I hope I presented it in a way uh, to show how much this piece really made me think um, about my own ideas about genre. So what did the both of you think? This was probably one of my favorite pieces I've read in a really, really, really long time for a myriad of reasons. I really enjoy her writing style and sentence length, but also the fact that, uh, much like my style of writing, I think she approaches this from multiple lenses and it's a really holistic, comprehensive um, take on genrefying. And I think that much like everything else in the world, we're led to believe that entertainment and its industries and infrastructure infrastructure are often a reflection of society and consumerism, or that they're dictating what society and consumerism will become. And so inherently, I think the thing about genres is when we talk about the convenience of categorizing for the sake of sales or for the sake of recognition or for the need to have some type of community-based funnel that allows you to recognize more people across different genres versus best music at large, for example. I think it's really interesting and funny because it feels like the world is just waking up to the idea that the most inherently important thing in the music industry is the listener. And that shouldn't be radical. Like, this isn't new, this shouldn't be a magical idea, but the idea that for so long genres have served sellers, not buyers, and they're designed for the convenience of sellers, not buyers, and listeners and ticket buyers and concert goers find community in fellow listeners. It's, in my opinion, a system designed to convenience one part of the equation, but really does nothing for the other half because when people fall in love with the music, despite the identity that it might have provided for folks in the past or currently, I don't think Gen Z and the new generation is as attached to that problematic identity as they are to the listening experience and the love of the music. They're actually more likely to care about an artist's morals and ethics or how they present themselves online than they are if they're categorized as blues or jazz. Um, and, and maybe that's a generalization I'm making, but it's one that I believe. Um, so I guess it's okay. But I, I think the mood-based playlist thing was a huge indicator because it's about how the music makes people feel and that people can agree enough to that feeling or that vibe or energy that that is how they categorize their music. I mean, I manage an artist who sings soul pop acoustic slash not music in two different languages. And every time we're submitting to a different outlet or entity, we have to think about how that entity categorizes music, not how we would describe ourselves. And that seems so silly because inherently the community that's reading about the music they're featuring or buying tickets or looking for artists or profiling them is there for the energy and the vibe of those artists, not what somebody else categorizes them as. And I think she does a really sick job of kind of describing that exact concept, but in depth enough that people understand what playlisting has done for artists and the problematic nature of genres. That being said, I think that 
it's it's no secret that there have been benefits of genres to some degree, obviously for one community over many, many other communities. But I think that the idea that we can reimagine the future is really interesting because I don't think the next generation needs to understand why genre is wrong. I think we need to change what genre means inherently because sometimes we, it's, I, I sometimes feel like we give problematic systems power when we continue to explain them and spread their gospel while trying to prove that they're problematic as opposed to being like, how many new award shows do does the new creator economy have the capital to start creating, right? A couple of years ago, Shorty Awards and YouTube Awards weren't anything. No one cared about those in film and TV, and now that's where you find the next best TV show in indie film. So maybe music can see some of that growth in its own way. And this ties for me back to a little bit about what Gary writes about Bad Bunny and other artists and America's view of the Latin Grammys versus the Grammys and how they're not really different for people from other countries. It's the same level of importance. It's just that they needed a whole other one for a specific geographic region because there were too many artists or because we're not going to recognize them. So this like hierarchy complex I think is changing because you no longer need to geographically be in a place to be exposed to its music or to its artists. So maybe genres are going to change with it. Yeah, I have about 15 responses to that, but I'm going to let Ryan speak because he has not yet. So Ryan, what do you think about the piece? Yeah, so yeah, the crazy thing about this piece is that it's not um, a million words long. Like that is the genuinely insane thing about this piece. You can tell by the conversation we're having already, by the monologues we're having already, that we have so much to say about the um, the things brought up in this piece that were fully fleshed out within the piece, but were also t- like took a couple paragraphs to explain, and that's insane. That is genuinely mind boggling. Like Mickey said, it's a book condensed into an article in every single sense, especially in the um, the way. That you spend years and years writing a book, and I wouldn't be surprised if this article was years in the making. It could have been like over the last two years easily. Uh, just because of how beautiful and elegant the word choices on a very molecular, nerdy level, that Amanda chose each word just beautifully. And the piece wouldn't flow if it wasn't for that. The piece wouldn't. Um, I guess like the jigsaw piece of the piece wouldn't fit together if it wasn't for the specificity of each of the words chosen in the piece. And um, so, yeah, just on that level, it's it's a gorgeous, gorgeous um, little thing. On another level, and Jashma brought up an amazing point where she said um, the industry has finally realised that music is for the listeners rather than the sellers. And that's just a capstone of what's the underlying, uh, not theme, but the underlying protagonist of this piece is capitalism and colonization and globalization. And every piece we discuss on the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but it's true because things being made for the seller. So I feel like genre is kind of the filter that music has to go through in order for people to be able to market it. And it's gotten to the point where people don't understand it unless it has a genre attached to it. And that's especially applicable for artists from minority communities trying to um, uh, 
have their music recognised on a larger scale, it needs to be twisted and turned to the point where a mainstream audience can understand, oh, it's, like, Afrobeat. Oh, it's, like, um, I don't know, some kind of other thing, right? Oh, it's, like, rap, but it's not really, because it's something else. Um, so that's one group that, like you were saying, that genre serves. It serves the sellers, it serves the people who need to market their artists. And, like, um, uh, like Amanda brought up, uh, the quote from the Warner Bros, um, head of Warner Bros, talking about how, oh, drama is so important because it gives us direction when we're marketing an artist. And But for other labels, it's like, we don't care because music isn't about that. It's about the listening experience and how you feel, which is where we got to with the um, Spotify playlists. But I did want to bring up uh, another side of the spectrum, which is, um, I've probably said this quote a billion times in the podcast. It's from Open Mike Eagle, and he talked about having to create the subgenre of art rap because he wanted to make something where his album wouldn't be compared with Kendrick's album because Kendrick's album was made of money and Open Mike Eagle had no money. Open Mike Eagle couldn't clear samples, Kendrick could clear whatever he wants. So he used the Izzy Brothers sample in one of the songs. Come on, like, <laughs> that's insane. So. I th- it's cr- it's funny to see on the opposite side of the spectrum who benefits from establishing genre and why. Because obviously art rap is, of course, it's the space for more avant-garde, abstract art, but it's also this thing where you it's not a... Um, it's inherently not mainstream, and that's an important... That's deemed an important um, segregation from the artist who made it. And I just think that's interesting. And there's people in the middle who just don't care and just want to listen to a vibe, like you were saying earlier, and like the piece points out. You know, Ryan, uh, <laughs> it's really taking all of my power to be to not say some version of, of course, Ryan would bring art rap into this piece. <laughs> but at the same time, it really is way too good of a point for me to make fun of you. So I will retract that <laughs> semi half dig. <laughs> it's literally way too good of a point and really brought a whole new breath. But I mean, um, Ryan, you bring up a really interesting point because. When we talk about what the purpose of genres or what factors into genres, right, in the same way as what factors into awards, if it's streams or what have you, inherently indie means something different everywhere. And mm. through language and precedence of a hierarchy of a North American based music industry for the world, it's now getting markets like Africa, the South Asian subcontinent, Eastern Europe to fall into these ideas, right? There's a playlist called Indie India on Spotify. What does indie mean in India? In India, that means non-film music. For the subcontinent, it simply means music that was made not for films or by film houses or film composers, right? Does that inherently mean it, it, like the Kendrick example, was made without funding? No. Does that inherently mean it's made by artists that don't have anything? Sometimes, yeah. Some of the artists genuinely don't have funding and are genuinely indie. But I think when we're describing these terms as the world becomes more and more and more globalized, it's a little bit like what she talks about where it's the aesthetics and the different ways that they use to define genre because they need some way to categorize it. And I'm not against the idea of categorization. I'm against the idea that categorization comes from the convenience of the seller. And record labels, if you want to hire me, this is your opportunity. Prepare for some wisdom. Um, So at a label, when we're pitching artists and every artist from every community besides predominantly Caucasian ones, likely has experienced this before. 
you're so you sonically may fit into a genre that exists. I know people that are country artists. I know people that are R and B artists. I know people that are like acoustic singer songwriter artists. But simply because no one on a team at a record label knows how to market that entity because of their aesthetic differences. Forget linguistic ones. That's a different conversation. Aesthetic differences. They don't get given chances and they don't get marketed in the same way until something as big as the Latin community for 30 to 50 years of advocating for themselves and relying on their own subcontinent country support gets so big that you have to start hiring accordingly or creating subsidiary labels or partner entities, right? But it shouldn't take that to think naturally. If you are a proponent, a label, a conglomerate that supports X genres and your music consumers span more than three geographic locations, that your team should probably be comprised of people from those geographic locations at the least to be able to begin to adequately know how to market those people. And in reality, what we're really saying and not saying out loud is that it is very hard to convince a mass public that for their entire lives has seen white men in flannel sing country music, that a black man can also sing country music. And when that black man does not adhere to the values or the systems in a certain way that they are used to seeing, it becomes problematic, right? And then the only way to win win or crack the code, I'm winning in uh, air quotes, guys. Um, The only way to crack the code in that environment then becomes to adhere with the value system of that consumer, even if it's not your value system, to try to get some type of acceptance. And inherently, I think that that's where genre fails. It makes people one note because we're afraid of being like, what happens if we go against the grain and we continue to make this music for long enough that it ends up on a playlist or on someone's radar and sonically they meet the artist before they physically meet the artist. And then does that impact bias? I'm always really fascinated on like, if you heard music on a playlist and I didn't tell you it was a South Asian artist, would you then have a different opinion when you realize that it is? Exactly. And as long as the Anglo West is financially financially dominant. Globalization just means colonization. It just means distorting the art into different categories, like you were just saying. And when I talk about the art, I don't just mean the music. I mean the life that the music holds outside of the MP3 file. It's the aesthetic of the artist. It's how they want to be represented. And all of that is distorted. I think it, I mean, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole here, but even the way we start to talk about artists, I remember I think the first episode I did with you guys was about like the extreme hate for WAP and criticism from other rappers. Um, And and I think it was a Candace McDuffie piece. But I think that it's a little crazy because it's down to how we then allow media conglomerates and journalistic outlets to cover those artists. If Shania Twain wore booty shorts and a crop top with a cowboy hat, innately the internet's reaction in those communities is excessively different than it is when Saweetie does it or Megan the Stallion does it. Um, and I think now we live in a world where hip hop has, is, is, correct me if I'm wrong, the most consumed genre around the world. I think it's going to be a very interesting ride to watch how systems that are purveyors of hip-hop change and their ownership changes. And I think that's starting to happen with entities taking stuff like Versus to Triller. Um, But I also think it's going to start happening because within our own sub-genre communities or the people aesthetically associated with those communities is a lot of change and acceptance happening because the 
financial ability is changing. Musicians that have had lifelong careers are now becoming music conglomerates that build new artists because they're starting to phase into new life cycles. So I'm curious to see how the, the Anglo world adjusts. Yeah. So to just bring it before we, we definitely need to move on to the next piece, but just like a last word of kind of, uh, what Amanda does specifically is really does, I think, a, an important job of inserting herself as that point of view, as someone who grew up with those ideals and, and the necessity of or the new perspectives she gained when she challenged them, not only within like her historical understanding, but within herself. Um, and then just a last word about the um, the kind of the structure that Ryan was going on about before, um, which is that you know, how each word is placed so specifically, um, and how it's so much is condensed into like two paragraphs. I think that inherently, I I don't know how conscious it was when she was writing this, but that inherently allows for such a free flowing monologue, like conversation, like we're having right now, um, which makes this a perfect piece for this podcast, I think. Um, and I think, um, it really shows, to bring back to my original kind of the New Yorker style shows the value in this um, that, you know, it makes even in what would be considered a classic style, the most modern and the most interactive, um, really condensing a, a book in something that could be two chapters into two paragraphs. And uh, yeah, this was just a really great read for me. Yeah, 100%. I thought it was one of my favorite pieces and I could probably go on and on and on, but we're not going to do that. The next piece I think is a really exciting one that ties to all this. All of today's pieces are super um, interconnected in a very literal and metaphorical sense, but it's called Doxing with the Devil. Pop stars must ask fan armies to lay down their weapons on social media for The Independent by Rachel Brodsky. Yeah, so this is a piece that I brought and it's about um, toxic fan armies on social media and how they essentially limit the freedom of music journalists to criticize an artist fairly. And I want to jump to just the most hard-hitting part of this piece, which was when Rachel kind of inserted her own experience in and how she described um, commenting on Taylor Swift's Grammy acceptance speech and how that was met by Taylor Swift fans in a DM saying her to kill herself and all this kind of stuff. And the whole time, Rachel absolutely loves Taylor Swift's music. And that's kind of a really important part of how counterproductive the whole thing is. And that's like, I think the really real core of this piece is like, it's so counterproductive to everything. Because having that reaction to that bit of criticism only contributes to, and one, a negative perception of your artist, of the artist that you love. And it lessens the value of praise if you can't, allow criticism and it devalues the art because anything anyone says about the art is that just made out of fear do you want that it's like is that the end goal so yeah but overall this piece is kind of about about the lack of acknowledgement from the artists themselves and the artists who often have negative feelings about towards journalists and and critics themselves and oftentimes those negative sentiments will um, encourage their fans to unfairly attack journalists. 
and therefore attack the uh, free their freedom essentially to criticize music, which at the end of the day is art, and art is there to be discussed and criticized and torn apart. But um, yeah, I won't go on <laughs> because <laughs> we gotta get moving. But uh, I want to ask you guys this uh, openness question: Like, is it irresponsible for artists to call out what they think is unfair criticism, or is it fair for them to do what they to do that and not expect their critic to be harassed? That's a great question. But I think that it's the same thing as politics or art or really anything. Uh, a good example of this is sort of like YouTuber mafia that started to happen in like 2011, 12, when these creators over the course of like their three to four early years had mass established these audiences that were deeply invested in them, specifically the ones that started with maybe like beauty product how-tos and moved into lifestyle bloggers because it's a false equivalency of an intimate relationship when you know how one side of the equation lives and based on that envy or curiosity, you become a martyr for them essentially or they inspire you so much you feel like a sense of loyalty to them. I think that when that happens in music, one of the best things about music journalism is that generally the criticism isn't a personal vendetta. It's a comprehensive report on something and how it can be perceived or how it was perceived and even op-eds, right? And I think that if an artist has a pain point with how they were covered, that's fine. You are absolutely entitled to not enjoy what someone said about you. That being said, I think we live in such a polarized climate right now on social media on all fronts that people deem criticism as a contributor to something related to causation or an enablement of problematic structures or entities when sometimes it's talking about all of those things but can be a critique and we're not a society that has allowed for people to be critiqued because criticism prior to this might have really been disenfranchisement, right? And I think that there just needs to be a difference between is someone disenfranchising you or are they critiquing you in a way that isn't insulting your existence as a human being, but just critiquing music. And if we get there, I think responsible artists should tell their audiences that coming for people's lives, literally through death threats and stalking them and making their lives a living hell or going to the conglomerates they write for or work for and making it impossible is absurd. But I don't think that happens because artists today are given so much access to social media that either it's a part of their brand to create some type of discourse with other comparative, comparable artists or people in the ecosystem, or they have no media training because they don't see value in media training because they're able to monetize by spreading their music digitally. That being said, a longevity of a career is contingent on how well it can be documented, in my opinion, because tomorrow... If we have zero articles and zero pieces written and there's just this massive cloud database of photos and videos and TikToks that someone took of something, but that doesn't live anywhere, then will people know about a difference that was made by that artist or that they were legendary? The reason we can talk about Biggie and Tupac and other people is because someone wrote about them, because their music lives somewhere, because it impacted people enough for real critique. So if you take that away, I don't know how legends will perhaps immortalize themselves enough to gain respect or if it's something they even really care about or if we're in this like hyper clout slash money slash immediate gratification environment where that doesn't even matter but maybe our next piece is a solution with nfts but we'll talk about that in a second yeah i think look artists should condemn 
problematic harassment, but can absolutely discuss critique. I just don't think they're really doing that. Right. Yeah. My, my answer is very similar to that. Um, but you, you kind of hit me with a left hook of where where you wanted us to answer the question, Ryan, because <laughs> because to me, what I took from the piece was very much like um, or what the, the point of the piece felt like to me was we can talk about responsibility all day in the back of for- and forth. But at the end of the day, if this mass cult like fan following is going after the well-being and the safety of a writer or journalist, then just as like human to human with an understanding, if you have, you are at least on some level aware of the the power that your voice holds over this very cult following that will defend you and attack someone for saying anything negative about you, that rather whatever responsibility is Uh, in the kind of like logical sense of it in the just kind of moral sense of it if you are aware that this type of thing is happening it just feels like the right thing to do to protect someone's safety who's not going after yours that they're doing some version of their job they're critiquing the art to some level and i you know it's a tricky line to me when you get into kind of what just was is like the back and forth of like can someone be allowed to respond to a critique that they have a problem with how someone critiqued them and analyze. And that's like, it gets really kind of hairy in there because you can never read intention. Right. Cause like on some level, you know, maybe they're doing that to evoke a fan base, but also they should maybe have some agency on some level to be like, you know, you said this specifically about my album and I just wanted to respond to it because this was how I was thinking about it. Blah, 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 blah. But it's just the, the, having the you know human decency and awareness at the end of the day that if whatever you're going either knowing beforehand that if you do some level of something knowing where the climate is and everything that you should maybe precursor it with some level of like hey i just want to have a dialogue with this writer my fan army whoever you are please do not go after their livelihood or if you have a back and forth and then this becomes this thing that happens kind of calling them off on some level whether it works or not um, you have it. You have to have some awareness that at least your voice has the the magnitude with this group of people to to have some effect at least on a large group of them. Because what they're really trying to do is some weird, twisted version of defending you. Um, and it's just like really let's let's just have some decency. Like no one wants to get hurt because of this back and forth. Um, that's what I really took away from the piece. So like asking it on the front end is kind of a weird, hairy gray area for me where I kind of go back and forth. But that kind of like that felt like the kind of final conclusion of like, listen, if someone's coming after someone's life and you have the agency to do something about it, why wouldn't you? I also wonder if it's because no one come for me. Artists have a lot of opportunity to make themselves exceedingly vulnerable and monetize different aspects of their lives through social. And that is completely fair because of how much they're disenfranchised through things like streaming and music infrastructure not getting paid. But I wonder if in all aspects, music, politics, everything intersectional, that the lack of physical time spent amongst humans allows them to dull their human responsibility to one another. Because if you weren't given the opportunity to be keyboard warriors on everything or to harass people and send militias behind them, would you be different? Would it be different if you were telling an artist something in a meet and greet? Would it be different for the artist? Would it contribute to different things? 
and I think at large, I don't think that there's an answer, but I think my answer would be like, this is a case by case situation because if a writer or a publication, because some are part of systemic problems and that's not lost on any of us were to publish something heinous. And that was a character assassination. Who are we to police an artist's reaction on that? Um, that being said, inciting violence or inciting harassment on someone that's trying to do their job, that loves what they do and is writing about music or art and critiquing it seems crazy given that social media is a deformalized place to do all of those things without having to have sources or anyone back you. So it seems almost like hypocritical, but inherently isn't everything in entertainment hypocritical. So I don't know if it matters. Yeah, that's the thing. This piece is so much... Just like the last piece, it's so much in one piece to discuss. And a a really scary thing that I was just thinking about now is like how journalists themselves want to be personalities with their own fan bases and how that complicates things further. And yeah, it's not, it's, it's ugly in every sense. Like no one really wins. And that's the main thing that I got from the piece is like nobody wins at the end of this like was the is the goal really to bring the metacritic score of taylor swift's album up like is that really the end goal of everything (laughs) (laughs) who wins really yeah so that goes into the thing that i definitely wanted to make sure we touched on when we talked about this piece which is on some level like my own personal journalism philosophy that ties in on some level to like the central sauce one Um, which me and Carter, who is the founder of Central Sauce, kind of talked about when I came in here, which is this idea of like, even whatever the actual value is in negative reviews of music. Yeah. Um, And like what that holds. And this is like a personal choice for me, but it ties into this whole idea that like, I just generally believe, unless you're, you're kind of speaking on something that's problematic like you're critiquing something of like this is this feels like a morally wrong way to approach this musically and i feel like i need to say something about it and analyze it that way that's one thing but as far as like negative music reviews about not liking the music for this 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 and this i personally i just think that there's way more power and we're kind of talking about the end result right ryan so it's like the the there's just way more effectiveness of like not putting the attention on something by being silent about it and there's so much music out there that exists that (laughs) deserves a highlight which is like an inherent part of central sauce's philosophy that i just i do fail to see the point of negative i mean music is so subjective anyway but just putting out a piece that has to do with this song is bad and I don't like it because this, this, and this just will forever feel like some version of a waste of energy to me. Not that people, it is morally wrong to do it. And this is such a personal choice for me and kind of, you know, it's not something we do at central sauce (laughs) It's like go through and be like, you know, we don't like this song because musically blah, 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 blah. But I think, yeah, what is, what is the end goal of that either? Um, I think is, it, is an interesting question to ask as well. And for me, it's, I don't, I'd it's, rather just talk about the stuff I like. Especially in an age where you don't have, you don't have like a limited amount of money to spend at the record store and everything's at your fingertips already. Like, do you, do you need a review to convince you to spend 30 minutes of your time but I think that, like, <laughs> I almost feel sometimes, I can't say it was better because I don't, I don't know that world enough, but... 
I think that there is some, there's a thought process change that happens when things are paywalled. There's an earning complex. There's a convincing complex. It's not the same as finding community in clout chasing or consuming something because it's being widely consumed. If you now have to purchase something, whether you're doing it to show it off or because an artist really means something to you, I think the responsibility factor changes. I hope it does because I think that that's kind of the integrity that's going to save a lot of artists. But when I think about... This is something I struggle with all the time because for communities that are really small and don't have journalism structures in music there isn't a such thing as extensive music journalism the onus becomes extremely difficult to decide when to constructively criticize something there's many 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 south asian artists that i think are incredible and it's great that they're doing it but at what point do communities that have been marginalized grow out of it's a feat that you did it it's a feat that you're doing surviving off of it and now when is it okay to be like oh, can I 360 assess my own community without everyone coming for me at my neck being like, we already have no representation. How dare you not say something? And it could be the most beautifully like supportive yet critical piece. And it won't matter, right? It won't matter for a million, a myriad of reasons. But I think that that's something to think about. And I think it's also interesting because like as much as journalists are meant to not be a brand or you know, there's this like original school of thought versus the new school of thought of them being personalities. I think they've always been personalities. I think previously publications chose writers and their style contributes largely to why people read them. The difference before maybe was you read the New Yorker for the New Yorker energy and you read the source for the source energy. But now, because those publications weren't able to scale and for a myriad of semi-problematic reasons didn't do a good job representing everyone that did deserve coverage, now it's about the person writing it. And people sell better than products and collectives do. We see it all the time. The influencers, the artists we cover independently at Central Sauce likely do better in terms of views, exposure, readership as individuals because that's how we psychologically buy into people. We don't buy into collectives anymore. And so I don't, like when writers are applying for jobs, we've all done it. We've all pitched articles. It's partially contingent on our voice style, dedication to ethics of journalism, or viewer base. And I think all of those things are a brand. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, everyone, ASMR Ryan said I was right. Um, I am officially validated for all things in life now. If you don't know what ASMR Ryan is, please stay tuned for Sauce Fest. Oh, well, actually, it was in the chat, so you had to be there. Yeah, you had to be there. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Ryan wants ASM Ryan to end, but it will not. I do. <laughs> I want to say just one thing just to um before we move on to the to the next thing unless Ryan you have obviously closing thoughts about yeah. your your piece um which is that with all the stuff that I said about uh you know the what is the point of kind of negative reviewing Ra- Rachel Brodsky specifically and going back to your original thing that you talked about that would be a very specific reason of a, that's kind of the crazy thing is the the impetus to do a kind of analytical dissecting a system and what is problematic about it piece is exactly what Rachel Brodsky did in that Taylor Swift situation as being someone who is that's a real journalistic dissecting the Grammy system which you know keeps coming up in this podcast and talking about the kind of like Italian mafia boss kind of back and forth thing that she she knows from being someone on the inside and saw by Taylor's you know acceptance speech and had Mm -hmm. this whole back and forth and that like 
you know, that inherently is an important part of journalism and, um, yeah, does not fall in line at all with, with the, the thing that feels more like a gray area to me. Um, and that I think inherently because, you know, the core of the piece is going to be her own experience, that that is a real, like, we have to allow space for that. And that, like, the attack off of something like that that holds inherent value of analyzing something that is problematic is something that needs to be respected and, and should not put anyone's livelihood in danger. But it does. Yeah, and talk- yeah it does. But talking about um, individuality and voice as a journalist, like, right enough to that point, no one else could have written this piece than Rachel. I think she executed it perfectly. Um, damn, what was the one thing I was about to say about the piece? Yeah, I like the piece that we brought today because um, topics-wise, it's really easy, one, to get them wrong and to stray into problematic territory, especially with this and be very definitive, especially with this, because it's such a miscellaneous thing. But because uh, Rachel towed the line so perfectly, we're able to have this conversation, which is so nuanced and so abstract in those kind of ways. So yeah, I really love this piece. Yeah, I think it was, again, you two always bring pieces that I say are my favorite that week, and it's true, but I think these might be my favorite for, for a little while. We're ready to move on to the final piece and the hot topic on the internet for a hot second. Um, Memo 29, NFT's potential in hip hop. This is from Dan Runcies, I hope I'm saying that correctly, Tropical Newsletter. Um, and the reason I chose this piece is because I think that it is such a beautiful time to be discussing the fact that hip hop is a globally prominent genre and is number one in the world right now but everyone's impression of what hip-hop is and is not is different but hip-hop also has industry capital in a different way for the first time and the community members that built hip-hop have capital in a different way for the first time so the idea that they're able to create assets that could immortalize them in the same way that athletes and other folks have been able to do in the past and create almost an exclusivity model is really, really interesting because I also think that listeners come from communities where maybe something like if in NFT is a high barrier to entry and a hard thing for them to wrap their minds around or financially be able to contribute and participate in. But maybe the world is changing. Um, I wanted to start this with, do you both know what NFTs are? Slash when and where did you first hear about an NFT? Oh man, I'll start. <laughs> um you know what? <laughs> Prior to this piece being selected as a part of this podcast, I was avoiding the topic of NFTs entirely. <laughs> so prior to reading this and being like, oh, I guess I got to find out what NFTs are now. Uh, I did not really know what NFTs were, but I really liked um, some of the metaphors that Dan Runcie used to explain what they are. And it really deeply connected with me, especially with the trading card metaphor and the explanation of what it um, has to do with hip hop, um, which we can get into later. But Ryan, you should answer the question. (laughs) Yeah, probably that last month, I spent a lot of time squinting at screens with words on them about NFTs, just trying to (laughs) visualize in my head what it could look like or like, yeah, trying to wrap my head around it. Um, yeah, I, I think I got there in the end, but, like, this piece, um, like, Dan Runcie does it in, like, 
a little paragraph, like so perfectly. And like you're talking about the metaphors with the trading cards perfectly, yeah. Um, so yeah, this piece actually helped solidify what I thought it was already, having read other pieces. You're also funny. Um, a couple of years ago, a boy I thought that was very cute on the internet, a man, a man I thought that was very cute on the internet, he used to talk about crypto all the time. And I was like, yeah, not joining your Slack channel about whatever the hell Bitcoin <laughs> is. Should have done that. Plot twist. Should have done that. Um, <laughs> so... <laughs> I'm crying because our podcast aficionado over here, Charlie, just pulled up a red flag and said it should have been a red flag. It was. We didn't date, but I did learn about crypto um, and I didn't buy any, which was stupid because now here we are five (laughs) years later. But I think that Dan did a really, really wonderful job of explaining that in rudimentary terms, it's quite literally a digital asset that you purchase with a certain type of currency. And depending on where you are on the knowledge spectrum of crypto and the values or non-values of a digital asset, you can understand that statement. And I think that in music industry, fundamentally, there's a history of things being inaccessible because of the way that they're described. In corporate at large, that's kind of how capitalism wins and propagates class issues is by using language that is knowledge and teaching based in certain structures that people don't have access to, irrespective of if the skill set requires knowing those words or not. I feel it and see it all the time when I look at corporate marketing proposals and I'm like, oh, I do these 25 things. I didn't know this was the catch all term for these 25 things. Um, So I think that's all that really the barrier of knowledge here is. But I love the part about vinyls, records, NBA trading cards, and how he made that metaphor an explanation of why we would purchase something we can already readily consume. And whether it's like one of the few things of you want to be a part of the club that has an exclusive something, you want to be able to track it. I actually think this is really obvious and has been happening for a while. We saw it with rap caviars. Um, Spotify had done this thing where it would tell you when you first started listening to an artist. I can't remember what that uh, the campaign was called, but if you opened your Spotify, it would be like, you were an early adopter of X or you listened to this person this year that's now popping, right? And so why would that matter to you? And as people start to develop things like apps for artists that take them off of Instagram, take them off of whatever and become just about the artists and their audience and you get to say you were one of the first supporters of this or you get to buy into this exclusive property and artists are monetizing in a very, very real way. I think that like people have wanted to flex that they were first for lifetimes and generations. It just changes in how they're doing that. So this allows you to do that and allows it to be coded. And I think that that's like the main thing about NFTs to understand is that for the first time there is a rise in deep fake technology and hearsay and articles being edited and music being pirated, samples being changed. So if a digital embedded code that benefits only the owners of that code who can be anyone, then maybe it decentralizes something that we've only known in structures before. And whether we all have different theories on how economically prosperous this will be or not, inherently, I think the idea is good. I have, you guys can't see this, but I have a Ray Charles, a message from the people record sitting by me. And the idea that I would purchase this when literally every song is on the internet for free 99 um, seems silly, but it was important to me to have something with the original artwork, to be able to touch it, to be able to see it, and have an experience with it that's outside of a device. Um, and so I wonder what you both think about the rise in NFTs and hip-hop. It's funny, like, that exact thing is something that was brought up in another article 
oh, was it John Karamanica? I think it was a John Karamanica article where he mentioned a quote from Nipsey Hussle's manager who was brought up in his piece Dan says Nipsey Hussle would have loved NFTs because um, uh, Nipsey, Hussle's ma- Nipsey Hussle's manager was talking about how nowadays the CD is a proxy for fan enjoyment because obviously they can get it on the internet, whatever, they can listen to the music, but buying the physical physical thing, like Trash was just saying, is a proxy for fan, um, yeah, just how much, how big a fan you are, because, I, and I understand that, I understand one, wanting to have the one thing, this individual thing that no one else in the world can say they have, to show how much I love this artist, because, like, that's what art does to us. It it connects to us on a fundamental level that makes us do crazy things like spend twenty five pound on a vinyl than thirty pound on shipping for the vinyl. So, <laughs> but um, yeah. Like so, I did with the Arlo Parks album. Yeah, right. I was from say... UK. <laughs> Literally, how I got that vinyl. Shout exactly, <laughs> exactly. Shout to Arlo. But um, and I love like I'm so one thousand million percent here for agency for artists and giving them something that they can directly profit off and actually live <laughs> off their music because you live in a society where it's like you can't survive if you want to make art for people to enjoy and use to get through their lives, which is messed up. I have this um, theory that we teach people how to treat us, and it's kind of my philosophy in life at large for a myriad of reasons. And it's not a catch-all. It has contingencies. But I think when artists create something that people are passionate about and then ask of audiences to rise to the occasion, whether it's resource-wise, how they listen, where they discover, how they purchase, it allows the audience to start reframing what they think accessibility of people's talents should be like and raises them that way. So the value of how they look at creative careers, the way they value themselves. I had to see artists not be available for an interview, not be able to do a hundred things, not be as accessible or not be able to afford to go do something to make me want to do it more and understand why it had to be that way, why it wasn't universally accessible, right? And part of that is just capitalism at large, but inherently I do think that that's important and it's not lost on me that it's also expensive experience for the audience, right? It's an expensive experience to go on touring. It's an expensive experience to have a VIP meet and greet. It's an expensive experience to purchase things. But maybe if artists get to a point where they have full ownership of their pipelines and can sell things that feel good to them, then maybe over time we bridge the gap where we're no longer able to see people as whole people that grow and that sort of middle ground of toxic social media or having to promote art by doing a hundred other things that you don't feel like doing starts to disseminate again and it becomes about the music listening and knowing experience and that's through things i think like nfts i also think because this article was about nfts with the potential to lead through the hip-hop genre and community I think it's a huge opportunity for artists who have audiences that are marginalized communities to be like, this is an NFT. This is how you can purchase crypto. This may or may not be the way of the world, but here, let me help you. Help me by helping you. And I don't think that's any different than when an artist does an exclusive with a platform or a streaming service and tells all their fans to go stream it on this platform specifically because they know they're benefiting with the highest streaming payout or they know that they need something. I think this is just another pipeline, but I think it offers the audience and the listener a huge chance 
to upskill in a market and expose them to things they would never be exposed to. I just think it's so crazy how much Dan Runcie hooked me into caring about NFTs. And I feel like he's a magician because I just wouldn't care about crypto ever. And then he just used the the <laughs> the trading card thing and then also talked about it being like an invest, an early investment in an article in a, a, an artist's career and i was like damn you really tied in my like music discovery obsession and like the hipsterness in me of being like oh no i found out i knew them when they were blah 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 and then also like comparing that to like someone who like literally collected baseball cards in their youth and was definitely i definitely didn't do any of the Yu-Gi-Oh or magic the gathering but i definitely had a little pokemon phase for sure but like kind of connecting those two worlds i was like you mother <laughs> you in a in a world where i thought no one would ever be able to hook me in uh you really got me but also think about it right like <laughs> hip-hop specifically there's a lot of conversation around like clout and the cosine and the value of those kind of things and in one part of my career i'm helping raise capital currently for a healthcare client and i'm learning about startups and it's really weird but i actually think like it's almost like being like please be my angel investor and therefore when i ipo you benefit right and in this case you might benefit by knowing me or having purchased an asset that will then get you 10x its return or just being a loyal follower right why do we keep jerseys from athletes that people maybe don't even care about anymore because they mean something to us but I think that's super cool, man, especially in music where everyone's like, nah, I put this person on, nah, I wrote that piece first, nah, I forecasted this through my tweet. Did you, though? I don't know, because, listen, I didn't buy an Axel Mansour Lullaby Club NFT, and those sold out in less than 24 hours, so can I say that I knew him early, Clubhouse? Air quotes, air quotes, air quotes. Um But, yeah, I think, I, I think it might be the wave. Yeah, Ryan, you don't know me as any type of person that claims any of those things that Joshua just wrote through a list of <laughs> you. <laughs> no, Not uh, Mickey texting uh, us saying he tweeted something <laughs> and it happened a week later. Yo, Nostradamus up not going to believe here. this. Remember when I told you? Oh, it's weekly. It's weekly, everyone. Like, Dan <laughs> but, um, uh, Dan. I, There's one thing I do have to mention because NFTs seem absolutely perfect. But there is the environmental impact of them, which is absolutely batshit, crazy, insane, harmful. Like, just to mint an NFT, it is, like, it will make your head hurt how much energy that has to use. And that's something that, I guess, we have to um, reconcile with as consumers and the industry has to reconcile with in terms of our planet (laughs) and living (laughs) Oh, intersectionality. Yeah. Um, Everything has a cost. Hopefully, hopefully, in a world where capital can be more equity-based in its distribution, solutions that can aid in maintaining a world that takes care of us despite how much we disenfranchise it, very literally, can also be made. Um, And maybe that's altruistic and naive, but uh, I recycle, so... uh, (laughs) No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Everyone care about the climate, please. Watch your carbon footprint. Um, This has been a great episode of of our Wait, are we not going to talk about the Donald Glover Amazon deal that was in the newsletter, too? Or are we just talking about NFTs? It's just the NFTs. Isn't that part of the same newsletter, or that was the other one? I just read down too far. I think you read down too far, but we could. It's the same. (laughs) 
No, nah, we don't have to if no one else read it, but Dan Runcie, I really loved your whole thing about the Don, Donald Glover Amazon deal, too. If I read down too far, yeah, anyone, you know, we've been going on forever. Generally speaking, Dan Runcie, we are fans. Um, yeah. So there is that. I will say, if we're talking about, like, journalistic skill set and style, I think Dan does a really, really good job of exactly what drew me to this piece, which is simplifying but not minimizing concepts that feel larger than life to listeners and consumers often and making them accessible because I firmly believe knowledge is the way to equity. So he stays doing that. Um, And it's very much in his voice, which is cool with these like very tangible, searchable examples of historical occurrences and industry. So I thought that was pretty fly. But uh, thank you all for doing this. This was a really fun episode, I think, about the shifts in ownership and the world and fandom in music. But... I do think we should talk a little bit about the fact that uh, if you missed Central Sauce, you really missed out, but uh, we might have something for listeners that weren't able to make it to watch in the near future. Oh, to Sauce Fest. Yeah. She cool. said Central Sauce, but she Oops, meant Sauce Oops, I meant Fest. Sauce Fest. <laughs> I did mean Sauce yeah, Fest. Yeah, it was really fun, and we just want everyone uh, to experience it, uh, like as many people to experience it as possible, because it was just really cool, and we got to just see people enjoy music and become fans of new artists in real time. And there's nothing more pure and lovely than that. Yeah. I want to shout out our guy, Sumit Sharma, for being an amazing host of Sauce Fest as well. I will keep shouting him out from the rooftops. He really killed it. And then all of, all of our artists who um, really blessed us with those. Those videos of their performances, um, we're eternally grateful for you. And yeah. Yeah, 100%. As always, if there is a music journalist you love or a piece you love, please send it to us at the Central Sauce Collective. Tweet one of us, Ryan, me, or Mickey, and anyone else part of the collective. And if you're an artist that wants to submit music, hit our submit hub. Hit our line. We want to hear it. uh, Thanks, y'all. Until next time. See you guys. This episode of the Central Source features Josh Mwadera, Michaela Back, and Ryan Gore of the Central Source Creative Collective. The episode was edited by me, Charlie Taylor Fifth and Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti. Thanks to your breakers for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast Network production. Thanks to Basti, Drop Records, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time as we continue our search for Source.